Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. It's good afternoon to the Bear of Dubbo, Matthew Dickerson. I'm sitting in for Mark Barnes this week. I've been roped in by Matthew. <laughs> good afternoon, mate. Um, I haven't done this for a long time. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. And I do appreciate you coming along and filling in for Mark. He's back from overseas next week. And we filled in a few of the weeks while Mark was away with some individual counsellor interviews. And the feedback from those has been really good. But I needed one more week to fill in before Mark comes back. So thank you for your time. I appreciate you coming along. My pleasure. Look, there's been plenty of things happening in Dubbo recently, and I think, first of all, we might do a little bit of sport. Uh, Things happening at Barden Park, things happening at the Leisure Centre, the Dubbo Leisure Centre, and also on the cricket ground. Let's start with swimming, first of all. I knew you'd go straight there first. You like your swimming? Yeah, (laughs) I'm slightly interested in that, yes. That's right, yeah. Yeah, Now, this is the 2023 Swimming New South Wales Country Regional Meet for the Western Region, so that's happening over the weekend as we speak, as we speak right now. 400 participants in that, about 360 competitors, about 40 officials. And what's great about that is it's great to see exposure for local swimmers in against, obviously, a bigger group, a a bigger contingent of swimmers. So they get to test themselves against higher level swimmers. But from an economic perspective, whenever we see these events come along, they're really good for our economy. And we do some basic calculations. They're not absolutely perfect but it gives us an indication and in something like this we find that for every swimmer because it's a junior event for every competitor swimmer that comes along about 2.2 extra people come along so might be a sibling might be mum might be dad maybe grandparents sometimes come along so basically for those competitors that come along about 85 percent will be from outside the region multiply that out by the 2.2 extras multiply that by $208 per person per night is what someone on average spends, and it adds up to about $452,000 added to our economy just from that carnival this weekend. So when people think about sport, sporting facilities, is it worthwhile having them? There's a great example of money that we've got spent on a facility. Now, it's not millions of dollars in the economy, and it's not millions of dollars on council's bottom line, but in our economy overall, it's a reasonable injection. Yeah, I've got a wonderful story for you about the country swimming carnivals. Um, basically, those kids then go on, if they qualify here, to state carnivals, to national carnivals, and they can qualify from there to go anywhere in the world. And, of course, many years ago, we had a young girl, aged 12 in those days, Diana Caleb, who won a gold medal at the country championships in Wollongong, and from there progressed through swimming, of course, and was a silver medalist at the 2000 Olympic Games, 100 metres backstroke, beaten by the Romanian, but it all started at the country swimming championships. So let's hope we see some more champions come out of this particular carnival and go on to Paris. (laughs) That'd be fantastic. And it's not just about those champions, though, either. It's about just kids being involved in sport, participating, testing themselves out. And the great thing about swimming, and obviously Australia does do very well on a per capita basis in our swimming, there are so many locations that have a 50-metre pool, that have an Olympic standard pool. So it gives them a chance to swim in their own local environments. But when they come from around the region and they come and swim here in Dubbo, they know that same pool, that same standard is going to be there. Of course, you would tell me that there are fast pools and slow pools, but at least they're all the same length of pool. So that's obviously fairly important. Well, two things about the Dubbo pool. Um, It's a fast pool, number one. Number two, it's 10 lanes. And um, so you can do it properly and it's accurately measured to 50 metres. And so a qualifying time in the Dubbo Olympic pool is a qualification that can be carried through to state and national level. Speaking of that, we also have an athletics park in Dubbo, which is called Barden Park, and it is being very active as I speak as well. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on there. We've got the New South Wales Country Championship, so a big weekend this weekend for sport in Dubbo. Uh, that actually started on Friday, so it's a three-day country championships. And this isn't a junior event per se, but as you can imagine, most of the competitors there are juniors because by the time people get to seniors, they get to be the parents, they end up taking the kids to these events. But you do have adult competitors, senior competitors there. So basically, this one's open to all the Athletics New South Wales clubs that are outside 75 kilometres away from Sydney. Mm. So basically, you've got all those country athletes across the whole board. This one's got about 700 competitors there, and you've got three nights there. That's 700 competitors and and 
associated people, if you like, uh, three nights there. So we expect the economic impact of that to be about 437 grand. This has been run for 78 years. And again, not in Dubbo, obviously, all that time. But once we put that international standard athletics track, you will remember back in November 2014, we put that track in there. That's right. Once we put that in, that it meant that we could start to get these sort of events. And we've obviously been getting many of these types of events. There's the New Year's Carnival they've been holding for many years. There's the qualifying events that you can go on to the state championships that kids can go on to the state championships through Dubbo Athletics Club. So there's a whole range of ones there, but it's great to see all these people there. And I was there on Friday when uh, there were some events happening around Friday and the opening of it there. And just seeing all those people, all those competitors warming up and getting ready, obviously all looking very fit and very strong. So it's great to see again those competitors there. And again, this is an international standard track everything there, any qualifying times, any distances that you might throw in the javelin or the shot put, all those are internationally recognised standards. So you can actually measure up against competitors across the world. Exactly. And interestingly enough, we're going to talk about cricket in a minute. Um, We've had teams here in Dubbo, but the athletes who finish at Barden Park and have been uh, testing and trying and trialling and those sort of things, guess where they go to cool off? They go to the pool. (laughs) (laughs) And same with the cricketers. And I note, talking to uh, representatives from the Dubbo Aquatic Leisure Centre recently, where they take postcodes, the cricketers we've had recently, after they finish the day's cricket, they make a beeline for the pool to cool off. And we've had some amazing teams here in cricket as well. That's right. They might have a bit of trouble getting into the pool at the moment over the weekend if they want to cool down after some... Running around the athletics. Let's talk about the Renewable Energy Zone, the Green Energy Hub. Matthew, I mean, this is um, important. It's I'm quite uh, staggered by this, and I think it is a huge development for Dubbo if we can get it off the ground and really get it going. But you've been given money to start the process anyway. Yeah, the state government gave us $108,180.50. I always have a bit of a laugh about some of these precise amounts that people give us or or that we get through these funding processes. But that's what we applied for. That's the exact amount we applied for. So that's fine. The real challenge here, I think, Richard, or the real opportunity is when we talk about coal-fired power stations being shut down, when we talk about coal mining on the way out, even talking about climate change, which I know just the mention of climate change scares some people, It's a changing economy that we've got. Now, some people are scared by that. Some people don't want anything to change. Some people are happy with the way things are. But whether you're happy or you're not happy, it's a bit irrelevant. It's going to happen. It's a bit like standing at the ocean saying, I don't want the tide to come in. I'll just put my hand up and stop the tide from coming in. Well, it's not going to happen. The tide's going to come in regardless. This new economy that we're going to see is happening. But Dubbo has an opportunity. And that's what I think of when I think of Climate change, when I think of these coal-fired power stations shutting down, I think, wow, that's exciting for us because we've got opportunity. Now, how do we seize that opportunity and what are all the opportunities that we'll be able to get or the benefits we'll be able to get from those? I can't tell you that at the moment. I know there are opportunities there, but that's exactly what this business case is about. Around us here in Dubbo, we've got the Arana Renewable Energy Zone. So we've got people already building solar farms, wind turbines, batteries. As a part of that, we've got Energy Co building bigger transmission lines out to take the power from this area back to the coast, back to some of the larger population centres. But we've also got other opportunities. For example, we've got recycled water or treated effluent. We've got a water treatment plant, sorry, a, a sewage treatment plant that has water that we could use for various activities there. We've got a gas pipeline that goes straight past some of these areas. So this particular area on Yarrandale Road is an area that we see from a council perspective that we could see develop into some form of renewable energy zone, green energy hub. And what do I mean by that? Well, I can't tell you everything because I don't know the things that will happen, but I know some things that I think will happen. You'll get things like, for example, green hydrogen production. We've already had a proponent come along and talk about that. When you've got excess power through solar or wind, for example, middle of the day, lots of solar being generated, you don't need it in the market at the time, what do you do with it? Well, one of the things that people do with it is they make hydrogen and that's green hydrogen because it's produced with renewables and that's a great way to store and transport power. Now I can see uh, maybe five years down the track when you'll get trucks going up and down the Newell that'll be run on hydrogen. They'll need to refuel somewhere. So on Yarrandale Road it's pretty easy for them to get from the Newell Highway across to Yarrandale. Imagine having a 
refueling station, I want to say service station, but they'll be called something different to that, I'm sure, a, a refueling station of hydrogen there where that hydrogen's all being produced with renewables. Now, that's just one idea. There are lots of other ideas. Oh, look, there are many, many ideas. And the thing is, the other thing about Dubbo is we're so centrally located in New South Wales. Uh, we've got railway here, we've got the highways here. And again, um, it lends itself to uh, business opportunities like this. I just hope we see manufacturing. We've seen manufacturing uh, business move from Perth to Narromine. Let's hope we see the same sort of thing happen in Dubbo, where companies in Sydney say, well, yes, the rates are too high. Yes, power is too high. We've got cheap power in Dubbo. Let's move to Dubbo. Well, I think you're actually going to see manufacturing, and I didn't want to say the big scary M word, because in Australia we've seen a lot of manufacturing disappear because we've got reasonable rates that we pay for our oh, labour. We, we don't pay decent wages. That's right. And some countries obviously And so we don't. should. Exactly right. But what some countries are finding or some companies are finding when they're using some of these countries that have got cheap labour is that power might be more important going forward and in particular net zero. And I've talked to a couple of major companies in from overseas recently and they've been talking about the fact that for them to achieve net zero, which they'll be expected to do in the near term, their inputs will need to be net zero. So if they can have some manufacturing of some components where they know they're getting green energy, where they know they've got a good supply of green energy or renewable power, then suddenly they can start to look at, well, there's net zero for those inputs, then, gee, that solves one part of the problem Mm. for us. So you've got that. I also think what the pandemic has shown us is that supply chains, reliable supply chains, maybe is starting to gain more importance than the cost of the actual manufacturing. There are companies around the world now that have got a two-year wait for the product that you might want to buy from them because the pandemic has thrown out some of the supply chain. So maybe being in Australia, we've got good, reliable governments, good, reliable supply chains. Maybe some manufacturers around the world will say, well, that's a good spot to put manufacturing. So we might see that. We might see solar panel reuse, solar panel recycling. I think We'll see a whole range of things, but you and I will be talking in five years' time, Richard, and we'll be saying, wow, we didn't even think that we'd see A, B, and C and Mm. all these wonderful things, and that's what the business case is all about, about getting ready for those opportunities. Bottom line line is we are going to have $108,000 and a decent business plan. We're going to be ahead of the rest. Exactly right. Let's look at some more local issues now. Um, the first Horseland store opening in Dubbo, or a new Horseland store opening in Dubbo, I should say. Uh, good to see. It is good to see. And there has been a Horseland store in Dubbo previously. It hasn't been one for a little while now. But what's exciting about this, I went up to the opening there, talked to some of the local staff there. Horseland has some franchises around the nation. They have some company-owned stores. They seem to be focusing more on their company-owned stores at the moment. But what was exciting about this here in Dubbo is they've got a new concept store, a new concept layout, and they've chosen Dubbo as the place to launch that because they really want to show the success of this. They want to demonstrate the success of this to other Horseland stores, whether they be company-owned or franchises around the nation, but they really wanted to show off that, and they thought that they want to make sure it's successful, and so choosing Dubbo, where there's a good, strong market, where there's a good, strong economy, and again, reliability in the council and the ability to put DAs in a whole range of positive attributes yeah. there. Well, I mean, so they've, cho- they've chosen well for Dubbo. Look at the number of horse ev- events we've had mm. in the last few weeks at the showground. Yeah, that's right. And Appaloosa for it comes to mind as one. And this particular store isn't too far from the showground, so it's a good spot to pick for that particular yeah. store. But again, they had a lot of confidence in there, and they're showing off this store, if you like, to other horseland stores. And when you walk into the Dubbo store, you'll see a particular concept there, other horseland stores don't have that at the moment, but in years to come, you'll see them all replicating that Dubbo store again, assuming there's a successful process there, which I'm sure it will be. So I like to see businesses, major businesses, national businesses, investing in Dubbo, making sure that Dubbo's got a presence for their brand, which means there's confidence in the economy here. Keeping the animal theme going, Matthew, um, the Taronga Western Plains Zoo are uh, expanding all the time and we've now got the new zoo hospital facility apart from other things at the zoo. Yeah, that's right. And now that was opened up in December and I couldn't make it to that opening, unfortunately, but I managed to get a chance to go out and have a look at that zoo hospital. It's amazing how many people bring in various injured animals mm-hmm. into the zoo. And I must admit, I mean, sometimes wires might bring them as well, but if, if I've 
hurt an animal on the side of the road, then wires is my go-to to ring to say, please come and help me out with this. Or sometimes I'll just take it to a vet. I must admit, I haven't actually thought about taking it to the zoo. I probably go to a vet first is my sort of normal reflex there. But people do injure animals on the side of the road or they find injured animals and they do bring them into the zoo. It's a part of the zoo that most people don't think about. They know the zoo for its wonderful tourism attraction. 300,000 people a year go through there. They probably know the zoo for some of the conservation work they do but they probably don't know the zoo for its hospital work, and it was always tucked away up the back corner, not for public exhibition. Whereas now they've got this Mm. wonderful hospital facility and all the treatment areas are behind glass, so you can actually watch some of the things that are happening. They've got cameras set up to go directly over the patients, over the animals they're treating, and then they've got microphones, so the vets that are working on the animals can actually talk to the people watching and actually explain to them what they're doing. They did touch on the very touchy subject of euthanasia because there are sometimes when animals are brought in and they're too damaged, they're too sick and they do need to be put down. But again, they normally talk about that with the people watching. The vets said they'll sometimes duck out and just say to the parents, we're going to talk about euthanasia in a second, so if you don't want your kids to hear, then move them along to some other area. But they said that is part of the process. So rather than hide it, rather than pretend it doesn't happen, they said it's still important to actually talk about the fact that it does happen, and here's why we're doing this. It's a humane process, and we're working on this. But some of the other things, I mean, when they're treating things like lions, when they're treating some of the animals that you see in there, it's a pretty interesting process. I remember uh, a long time ago uh, being at the zoo and they shifted a tooth out of a tiger because he had a toothache. <laughs> and it was a major operation. Yeah, that's I actually right. didn't witness the operation, but I saw the before and after yep. with uh, the tiger and saw the tiger, what, two days later? Happy as Larry. <laughs> but he wasn't a happy camper before he had that tooth out, I can no, show that's you. Right. And they had, they've got a, a little recovery area out the back there mm. and so they had a couple of eagles there you know these magnificent eagles with these huge wingspans and just seeing them tucked away in there healing their wings have obviously been damaged healing there but seeing them up close they are magnificent creatures so well done to the zoo for that new hospital and it's all about engaging mm. with the patrons that come through so it's pretty exciting <laughs> Hate to bring up the subject, but we've got to do it. Roads. Now, we've got uh, the Albanese government talking about $100 million for the Bells line of road, which is appreciated. We've got the state government talking about millions of dollars for roads for all councils. And Dubbo is included in that. Where are we up to with the road situation? I know we've got a lot of country roads. They're absolutely ruined by the water. Um, we've also got some ro- roads in our city that are not travelling terribly well at the moment. Where do we start? Yeah, and that is a very good question. Where do you start? Because there is so much to repair. Before all the latest series of ro- flood events, we had an estimated backlog for our roads alone of about $40 million. Now, we spend in this financial year at the moment we're in, our budget is about $28 million on our roads. So we spend significant sums of money on our roads, but still, even after $28 million, we still had that $40 million backlog. Then all the rains came, saturated landscape, the road damage, everyone was aware of that, the potholes, people were blowing tyres, damaging rims, a whole range of things were happening there. Now, we can start finally that repair process because we've got enough dry weather that some of that landscape has dried out. Before Christmas, the state government announced $50 million for regional councils. We got $955,000 of that, so thank you very much. We appreciate that. Obviously, we need more, but that's a good start. And then recently, they announced $500 million for all councils across the state. Based on some formulas and some calculations that I've done on that, I estimate that we'll get about $5.1 million of that. So again, this isn't about chewing into that $40 million backlog. This is about just doing some repair work on some of the roads. And there are some roads to be repaired. We've got. I mean, we've got roads at the moment that are completely closed and some that are extremely dangerous. That's right. And at the moment, we've opened up all our unsealed roads. So they were closed for a long period of time, those dirt roads. And some of those were very dangerous because you had puddles on them. You just didn't know what was under those puddles. So if you drove through that puddle, you didn't know how far you're going to go down, how deep it was, how sharp the edges were, etc. So we've now finally opened all those unsealed roads again. And obviously, the weather has helped us there. Mm. Hotter weather, 
drying out, less rain. But then you've got some places like Saxa Road that's between the Mitchell and the Golden Highways. That's been closed to all traffic except local residents. And that started way back on the 5th of October. And so that's a, a pretty bad one there. Again, we're working on that. Uh, we've got things like Gollan Road. Uh, that's a, a pretty bad road there. There's been substantial damage along there. Goulma Road was closed for a short period, but that's reopened again now. So basically, we've got a whole range of repairs still occurring. We've got bridges that are being opened or worked on some of the older bridges, some of the old timber bridges. We haven't got many timber bridges left, but that's work that was still ongoing despite all the work with the wet weather and the road pavement. We still had some of the bridge repairs going on and we've still got a few of those happening at the moment. And for a lot of those, we do rely on the state government to give us some money for those in particular, all those specific bridge repairs. Have so, we got enough staff to uh, look after the roads at the moment? Do we need more staff? And that that is the absolute challenge as well. We don't have enough to get through all the work that we're trying to do at the moment. And this $500 million has been announced. Part of the plan for that is that the road repairs we do with that money need to be finished by the end of December this year. So we've got to make sure we can actually get all that work done. And that is part of the problem. I've talked to Sam Faraway, the Minister, about this particular problem. I've even talked to the Premier about this particular problem. With all the work that's being done across the state, it's not just by regional council, it's across the, the entire state. In fact, further than that, across the entire eastern seaboard, the damage to the roads is extensive. So you've got lots of work being done, you've got lots of money around for roads, but then you still need the staff and the materials to be able to do that. So that is a challenge, making sure we can actually get all that. Because when the government hands out $500 million, every council is going to be out there saying, we need more materials, we need more bitumen, we need more staff, we need staff doing overtime. So that is an ongoing problem. We'll have to just try and address that as best we can. What I hope doesn't happen, but there's always a possibility, is that I hope we don't see councils poaching off each other for their road repair staff because it doesn't really help anything. It doesn't get the overall work done. But more to the point, it probably just drives up the cost of labour, which we want to see the most effective use of that $500 million. We don't want to see it wasted on higher sums that might be paid for various things. So it's important that we try and get all that work done, program that work in. We'll be doing our best to make sure we maximise the efficiency, maximise the productivity from that. And I suppose what I've said to people in the past is, be patient, we are working on it. The Western Plains Cultural Centre comes to mind and the Smokescreen film series returns to Dubbo. Really pleased about this because they are fantastic films and they do um, a great job in bringing a different for- form of film to the community. Yeah, and I haven't been to any of the previous Smokescreens. Haven't been, you? No. You naughty boy. I know, I know. <laughs> so have you been to some of the previous yeah, ones? Oh, great stuff. Yeah, yeah, right. So this year Smokescreens is going to showcase films from the classics of the 40s through to parodies from the 1980s. And so if you like thrillers, you like drama, you like romance, it's going to explore some old favourites. And and basically, it's one of the things that I've done with my kids in the past. You find an old classic that you know and you quote lines out of, a bit like Flying High, surely you can't be serious. I am, my name's not Shirley, that type of thing. Uh, But again, the kids go, what are you talking about, Dad? So I know I try and get... Uh, a little bit of uh, those old films in holidays, that sort of thing, some of those old films. So that's what I love about this sort of thing is you get some of these old films, but the theme for this year is forbidden. And so it could be forbidden love, could be forbidden treasure, forbidden knowledge. Films that relate to the term forbidden will be the focus of these films. So basically in the drama room at the Western Plains Cultural Centre, each month there'll be another film held in there and then there'll be a double feature in November. So it's just something different with the Cultural Centre. And you were on council when we built that Cultural Centre. Again, I just think what it adds to our community, the range of different things that people see in there. Obviously we've got the semi-permanent museum component but then the ongoing changing display that we have about every three months you'll find artworks change there it is great to go back there i mean sometimes i'll go there and just have a meal and duck in and have a look at the latest artworks there but it's also a great place to take people to give them a bit of a history of dubbo so lots of great things happen there i think they do some great work in holidays great things for kids there but it's always something different and this smokescreen series i will rectify my past mistake richard and i will make sure i get along to some of these smokescreen series films i can think of a wonderful movie i'll leave it in advance they may not run it but i can think of it it's got a couple of good lines in it that are forbidden. <laughs> Sounds good. 
Australia Day, the 25th and the 26th of January for Dubbo Regional Council. It does sound interesting, doesn't it, when you say it, it like it that? It does. <laughs> I um, was wondering about the 25th and I wonder about the 26th as days anyway, yep. but um, apparently Wellington are happy with the 25th. Oh, look, I'm sure not everyone is happy about it, but I think you've got to make change to progress forward and that's really what we're trying to do at the moment. Our councillors... In particular, we've got two Aboriginal councillors, but all of our councillors are very supportive of this, where we want to make sure the day is inclusive, we're focused on unity, we're focused on what a wonderful nation we have. I love this country, and many people that live here absolutely think it's, without a doubt, the best country in the world. Let's really focus on that with Australia Day. Mm. And one of the things is obviously for Aboriginal people in particular, it can be a very painful day, genocide day, invasion day, a whole range of terms are used, but... What we thought is, let's try something a bit different. And it's not that dramatic. We're trying a twilight event. Now, the Australian of the Year has been announced by the Prime Minister at a twilight event since 2004. So it's not that big a deal to go back to a twilight event. But I think it's just subtle messaging there. We actually ran into a problem with the Department of Home Affairs and we wanted to move the Dubbo event to a twilight event. There's a long story behind that one. But in the end, we couldn't move the Dubbo event there. But in Wellington, we could. So in Wellington, and I hope lots of people come along because we are doing a trial, then we'll do some surveys afterwards to see what people thought of it. But basically, we're starting markets at Cameron Park at 4pm on the 25th of January. And then at 5.30pm, there'll be the official ceremony. So the normal ceremony you'd expect where we'll have... The deputy mayor will speak because he's from Wellington, so I'm I'm basically saying it's better for him to speak at that particular ceremony. We'll have the ambassador, Peter Herbert is the ambassador. I'll come back to the ambassador in a moment. And then we'll have an Aboriginal elder speak about what this particular day means for them. And we thought that was important to really get some context around that. Once that's finished, that might be, say, an hour for the ceremony, give out the Citizen of the Year, the Sportsperson of the Year, those type of awards. And then the markets will continue on until about 8.30 that night. Well, I mean, the um, Wellington ceremonies I've been to in the past, I've done via radio when I was associated with Binjang Radio, which is the community radio in Wellington, were very well attended during the day. So let's hope that this one is. But the markets in Wellington are the attraction, and I'm sure that will get people there because people in Wellington love those markets. Now, let's get on to the uh, speaker. I think you're right. Yep, that's right. So just briefly on that. The whole concept there is also to show off the multicultural society we have. So there'll be some food stalls there, maybe some multicultural food stalls there. Mm. Because when you look at our population in the Dubbo Regional Council local government area, we've got 16.6% Aboriginal, 18.5% were born overseas. So we have got this melting pot of maybe several generations of white Australians, we've got tens of thousands of years of Aboriginal Australians. We've got people that have been here for five minutes from various places around the world. What a great melting pot. So Mm. that's all pretty exciting. The speaker for Wellington, Peter Herbert. Now, Peter is basically head of screen business and producing at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. He teaches in the Masters of Arts programs, but he's been involved in a whole range of TV shows, some of the old classics, Cop Shop, The Sullivans, The Flying Doctors, Acropolis Now, Con the Fruiterer, he wrote for the comedy company. Uh, So a whole range of things he's been involved with. He started or produced the inaugural comedy festival charity gala. It's now in its 27th year. And he also produced the TV week Logies, 992 with Steve Weizard. So very good background. So pretty exciting for Wellington people. And the ambassadors always deliver great value. They always seem like they're very accommodating for people as they go forward through the crowd and talk to people afterwards. So that's all about Wellington. Well, Move on Peter, to- Peter i got to say from Afters, the Australian Radio Film and Television School, um, is desperately involved, um, again, with community radio. Oh, there you go. There we are. Fantastic. So our ambassador in Dubbo, which will be on the 26th in the morning. That's right. So we'll start the event at 8 a.m and the official ceremony will start at 8.30, so there'll be a free breakfast, stall holders, etc. That'll all start at 8 o'clock in the morning. The official ceremony at 8.30, Citizens of the Year, those things will still have, again, the same concept. I'll do the address from the council perspective in Dubbo. We'll have the ambassador. I'll mention the ambassador in a moment. And we're going to have an Aboriginal elder as well. And in Dubbo, we do also have the new conferees, new citizens. And that's really exciting as well. Mm. What a great day to become a new citizen of this country. 49 we've got at the moment. 
that it will be given new citizenship or given citizenship here. Is in, that a record, 49? It's pretty much oh, up there. I reckon it's close. That's right. I, I do remember getting up into the 40s in previous years, so mm. I don't know if it's a record. We'll have to check back through the records, excuse the pun, but we'd have a look at that because it is a big number. And I'm finding even just the normal ceremonies that we do every couple of months, those numbers are getting bigger and bigger. It's not unusual we're doing 30 of those conferees at those events every couple of months. So the ambassador, I know you're keen to hear who the ambassador is, is David Hall, OAM. So he's a Paralympic gold medalist, former world number one tennis player, wheelchair tennis obviously, and an ITF world wheelchair tennis champion. So during his 15-year professional career, he won 80 events across the world, nine titles at the Australian Open, eight titles at the US Open. So he can play tennis a bit. So it'll be interesting to hear again. The concept there is ambassadors that you have, you never know who you're going to get, you never know what background, what they've done in their past, but they're always people that are proud Aussies and we're proud of them. So David Hall, I think it'll be fantastic to hear his story. And again, I'm sure you'll hang around afterwards and talk to lots of people in the crowd. So I'd really encourage as many people as possible to get down there and be part of the Wellington or Dubbo ones or both because they're at different times. Yeah, well, we've had some anecdotes about this year's Australian Open. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> he'll have... stories there. I'm sure he'll have some opinions about it, definitely. <laughs> Let's talk about water. Water always seems to be a problem for the regional council in many ways. Let's start with the fluoridisation issue. Uh, we don't get fluoride again until June. Perhaps we need to explain that to people again. Sure, I'll go through that again. It is very disappointing and I have apologised on behalf of council in the past, but I'm happy to do it again. In January 2019, there was a failure of a piece of equipment in the fluoride dosing process at the Dubbo Water Treatment Plant. Essentially, in simple terms, the container that held the fluoride had a leak, so you couldn't put more fluoride in, and fluoride's a pretty nasty compound, so effectively, or nasty element, you've got that being contained in something, and then obviously the dosing process that occurs. The mistake that was then made, not by our staff, our staff told New South Wales Health, our staff told the senior levels of management at council, but the mistake that was then made was nothing was done about it and the community wasn't told. And that's a breach of the Public Water Act 1957. If your community has fluoride in its water, which we have that agreement with our community, then it's a breach not to put it in there. If the community, you can go through a process to not have fluoride or have fluoride, but whatever the community decides... You can't just change it. You can't just not do it. You can't just go, whoops, that's it. But more importantly, you can't not tell people about it. Mm. And it was only a complete fluke that I found out about it. I was having coffee with a friend who made mention of the fact, and this is we're going to now around about uh, May, I think it was 2022. So three and a half years later, and I was having coffee with someone and they made mention of the fact that they'd heard there was no fluoride in the water. And I went, no, nah, of course there is. We have to put fluoride in the water. And we've got fluoride. I've been out of the water treatment plant. I've seen the fluoride dosing system there so uh, look look i'll check it out but surely that's definitely some little rumor or urban myth that's going around so i communicated this to the ceo and he had the same reaction as i did now of course we put fluoride in the water but i'll go and check it out just to satisfy us went and checked it out and of course we'd found that no it hadn't been put in since january and i actually went back and looked at the reports that had been given to our senior management been given to new south Wales health and they said quite clearly in fact they even said in the executive summary at the front, you didn't have to delve into many pages. At the front, it said that fluoride is not in our water at the moment and it needs to be addressed. So we told the community, told the public there, this has been happening for the last three and a half years. Our apologies. It shouldn't have happened and it should have been communicated. But we then started a process to fix the problem. Now, when we went to Public Works to say we need to fix this problem, they said, well, you could just repair what's already there. But we built that treatment plan in 2006. We've now moved on to 2022, as it was at that time. And we've got better ways of containing fluoride in pellet form, in a, 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 not a liquid form as such. So it's actually a better way to do it, but you'd have to redesign the dosing process rather than to repair what's there. So we made a decision to improve what we had there, which we're doing at the moment. Public Works have told us that by June this year, that system will be designed, out to tender, 
basically installed and we'll have fluoride back in our water this year, uh, by June this year, by the end of June this year. So, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's disappointing, very disappointing, and it shows uh, up just the uh, mismanagement we had with the uh, previous council. But the positive side of things is the fluoride dosing system is working in Wellington. Well, it wasn't for a short period of time. So <laughs> we, we actually had a failure in Wellington, yeah. and so within a day of that failure, we communicated to the community and said, there isn't fluoride in your water. The pump that would normally be used to actually put that water in has failed, and the parts for that are not available in Australia. We need to get them from Germany, and it's going to be the middle of March before we can get it. So we communicated that with the community, but we said that's the communication as it stands today, but our staff are working hard to see if they can come up with a better solution because, to my mind, it wasn't acceptable to wait to the middle of March. Two no. months seemed like too long a time frame. The staff did a fantastic job. Within a few days, they managed to get together a temporary solution where they've got a pump that's now up and running. Again, only temporary. You wouldn't want to leave it there for a long period of time. We still will get the new pump from Germany. That'll still come in the middle of March. But in the meantime, they've got a pump working and we've got fluoride back in the water in Wellington. So only a few days, people in Wellington will be without fluoride in their water. We spoke about cricket earlier, but we've had a lot of um, cricket in Dubbo. Uh, with youngsters in the last few weeks, and it will continue. Well, the exciting part that we've got here in Dubbo is we've got so many high-quality turf pitches in close proximity to each other. Our ground staff do an absolutely fantastic job with keeping those up to the standard that Cricket New South Wales needs, so they do give us a lot of tournaments, Richard, and these are great tournaments. So at the moment, we actually, last week, I went and flipped the coin to start the state challenge, so these are the best eight teams of under 14 boys from across the state. They break them up into metro and regional areas and the best four teams of under 15 girls. So those 12 teams have been playing throughout last week in Dubbo. And again, we talk about what that brings. So that's probably about 600 people that's brought to the community for four days, around about $500,000 that's put in the economy. So that's fantastic. But some of these cricketers, again, it's all about that process, playing against better standard of players getting to the idea of what are their skills, what do they need to improve on. It actually gets to the point at this level where some of the Cricket New South Wales staff told me that they'll know that there might be a shortage of left-hand finger spinners, left-arm finger spinners. So they need to try and develop some of these at this level so they know in five years' time, in state cricket, in national cricket, we've got that particular skill set. So these players that are being targeted here now that are playing are at the point where they're starting to target them for higher honours. Now, you've got lots of kids playing there. Not all of them are going to make it to an Australian team, but that's the process you're going through. So that's fantastic. So you've got those. And I talked to one of the, the team there from Cricket New South Wales, and I do remember way back last time I was mayor in one of my first things that I had to do almost as mayor was I remember tossing a coin at one of these events and I did actually say how long have you been going for and as far as they could remember and they didn't have the records in front of them but that year was probably the first or second year they'd been in Dubbo so that's been about 10-12 years that they've been in Dubbo with these state challenges. Don't forget that before Christmas we also had the boys youth championships from a country area that was the under 13, 14 and 15 area so that wasn't metro players that was just country so you've got that tournament's been going for a long time in Dubbo as well so you've got these great tournaments using some of our great sporting facilities there. And they found in the under 13 boys a young fellow there from Orange who they were raving about um he has got the ability to be a Shane Warne of the future. Yeah, right. Yeah, yep. I, I watched him. Uh, mate, he's got it. He really <laughs> has got it. And I must admit, when I watched when I went down to toss the coin last week, I watched some of these under-14 boys warming up and some of the bowlers who were taller than I was at the age of 14 yeah. or, or younger, and I watched them warming up and I'm thinking, well, I don't think I'd like to face them even though they're only 14. So there's obviously some pretty good talent amongst them there, which is fantastic, but good for Dubbo as well and good they keep coming back. And they're actually particularly praiseworthy of our staff because it had been raining up until the day before the event started and the pitches looked fantastic, the outfield looked magnificent and they, they were able to get on and play without any interruptions to their play. We've got a lovely grassed area in the middle of town that was a building, the Rural Bank building, I think originally has been pulled down and now it's in front of the jail. It exposes the jail really well as a tourist attraction, but not much happening. What will actually happen with the grassed area and why is it so slow? 
Yeah, it is a bit frustrating at the moment. There's it some, is. some wonderful plans there, and I remember looking at those plans when they initially came out, and I thought, oh, that'll be fantastic. It'll open up the jail. We'll see better visitation to the jail. But it'll really engage people in that CBD. It'll basically, I think, make it more attractive for people to go down to the CBD at night time. We know we've got some high-rise apartment blocks being built in the CBD. I think that will really engage and invigorate the CBD as well. So all these different things happening. So that was on track. That was going through that process. There was an old building there. As you said, the old State Bank building there, it was knocked down. And we knew there was a car park out the back there. And we basically had to clear all that up, really, to put the new installation in. But when they were clearing that car park and taking that bitumen off the car park there, as they dug down, they found a wall that was an old original wall from the jail, not the jail wall that we've got there now, but several metres in front of that. And so then it was, oh no, heritage. We've got to stop work, get a heritage advisor in and work out what we can do with this so that we don't lose that heritage, but we still want to go ahead with progress. So that's where we're stuck at the moment. The department responsible for this has got to give us permission to either to continue on with our original plans or modify those plans or expose that, keep it exposed, keep it visible, whole range of different options there. I want to see it happening. I want to see things happen there. I want to see that finished at the moment. As you say it's just a big open area. Yep. Let's see it finished. But again, we've got regulations that we've got to adhere to. Council is not a cowboy operator as such. We make sure we follow all the correct processes. So we'll do that and follow those processes and make sure we do it right. But yes, I, I'm feeling the same frustration as you in terms of I want it to be finished, I want it to happen. Yeah, I'd like to see it happen. We've got um, committees being formed by council now. In fact, I'm on a couple of them. I'm on the Aquatic Leisure Centre Committee. I'm on the Multicultural Committee. And I'm pleased to be a citizen on both those committees and pleased to find out what is going on. But the Villages Committee at the moment, uh, you're looking for people to join that. How's that going to work? I mean, how are people at, say, um, uh, you know, Mumble, for instance, are they going to travel to Dubbo to be part of the committee or are people from Wellington travel up? How are you going to do it? It seems to be a bit of a problem. One of the original plans was to actually move that committee around. So meet at the various villages, for example, meet in Wellington, probably not meet in Dubbo, really keep it to the villages. But after, the, and we've already had a couple of meetings of that villages committee, but it was decided that it was probably easier for those villages to have the meetings in Wellington and then either use technology to come in via video conference to those meetings or if they could travel to them, travel to Wellington itself to actually have those meetings. So it seems to be an easier compromise and part of the concept for having it at Wellington rather than going to each of the different villages was the video conferencing facilities are there in Wellington, whereas if you have some of those meetings in the other villages, council doesn't have video conferencing facilities in there. So someone could basically tune in with their computer or their mobile phone from their home or if they happen to be travelling or in mm. one of the villages, they could do it that way. But you're right, we got a whole range of different people who nominated for that particular committee, and that was fantastic, and they've already had a couple of meetings, but... We really want a representation from all the villages, and that was what we didn't get. But we started the committee regardless because we still wanted it to start going. But we really have, in my opinion, a desire to make sure we've got someone from each village. So we really want someone from Brocklehurst, Umundry, Geary, Mumble and Wongarvan. So if you're in one of those villages and you think that you can contribute something, not a big impost on your time, quarterly meetings – I'd estimate the meetings would probably go for maybe two hours. They'd normally be late in the evening, or not late, but say 5.30 in the early evening or late afternoon. So not too big an impost on your time, but it gets you a chance to represent your village and have a say about what's happening in your village, potentially get some extra money spent there, or just alert the rest of council to what's happening. Now, you'd know from your experience with village with committees, the committee meets and works out some things they might want, but it doesn't make a binding decision of council. That will then feed that information through to the standing committee, which again is a chance for all councillors to see it and discuss it, but it's not a binding decision. And then finally that we fed through to a council meeting where there is a binding decision that's made. So it gives people a chance to feed information up through to a council meeting process. 
Well, I mean, it's the point of view that um, when you get the, the they order principle, they ought to do this and they ought to do that. At least you've now got people on those committees saying, well, um, they ought to do this, and uh, you get a bit of an idea of what what the community are thinking, and, and that's good. Yeah, that's right. And I I do I know your first comment there was about some of those committees and reforming some of them. I really do um, fail to comprehend why the committee structure which we had at W City Council, which was mm. quite an extensive committee structure, why that was basically completely wiped. And what we are doing at the moment is, or we've already done it, we've formed lots of those committees. I think we've got about 16 or thereabouts of committees that we've formed again. This one just didn't have enough representation, which is why we've gone out and asked for more people to put their name forward. But it's a great way to engage the community, yeah. hear directly from the community. And there's a little bit of work for our staff to do, but... The reality is that's our staff's job is to make sure we are engaging with the community and finding out what they want. So I'm really happy to see those committees, those various committees, up and running again and getting feedback. And what are those villages again? The villages that we're really wanting representation from, Brocklehurst, Umundry, Geary, Mumble and Wongarbon. And expressions of interest are open until 5pm on the 30th of January. Two thousand twenty two was a year of consolidation for the new Dubbo Regional Council with the new councillors, uh, where we had uh, very inexperienced councillors. Uh, you have been on council before, one or two others. But um, how have the councillors reacted to um, being councillors and learning how the system works? I think they've actually done a fantastic job, Richard. Because there was so much learning. When we started in council, 23rd of December 2021 was when the official induction swearing-in process occurred. When that occurred, there were nine of the ten who had never been on Dubbo Regional Council. Uh, Yes, I'd been on Dubbo City Council, but there was a gap of about five years from when the amalgamation occurred to this council. And in that time, things changed. There's a whole range of things that that occurred that I wasn't aware of. So basically, I had to learn again as well. And there was only one returning councillor from Dubbo Regional Council. But to their credit, all the councillors really dived in and were absorbing as much information as possible attending all the training sessions, all the induction sessions. For the first probably month or two, it was pretty heavy. Where It was almost felt like every Thursday, every Thursday evening, there was another session, another induction session, another training session, learning about more things. And some of the council saying there was so much they didn't realise that council was involved in and all the processes you've got to adhere to. You are following the Local Government Act 1993, and that's the Bible, if you like, but there's so many things that are wrapped around that. So they've done a fantastic job, and I think now when we hit this year, the start of this year, which obviously we've already hit, you've got all that experience, all that learning, all that knowledge those councillors have got, and then a year's worth of working in council and understanding more about how it works. I'm not saying we've all got it perfect. I've still learned things every day about council, so there is still more learning to be had, but I think with all that experience under their belt, the councillors will really be able to start this year with you know, a great amount of momentum behind us and really go forward. I think there's a lot of trust that's being built up in the community. Trust takes a long time to build up. I think there's a lot of trust that's being built up in the community and will still be being built just seeing the way this group of councillors operate and I think they're doing a fantastic job. Well, it is all about trust because we have, unfortunately, councils in the past that didn't imbue that trust. In fact, we had exactly the opposite. I won't make too many comments about the past, obviously, but certainly... I'm only bringing up the past because I think you've got to relate what has happened to what is is happening now and what you intend to do in 2023. Yeah, so I think it is important to show that trust, to demonstrate trust, and the way you get people to trust you is to be trustworthy. And I think this council, this group of councillors, certainly demonstrated that open, transparent, and communication absolutely vital, Richard. This podcast is all about communicating Mm. more with the residents of the Regional Council. When you talk about radio stations, DCFM is a very important part of what I do in terms of that communication with the community, but so many different opportunities to communicate, so many different opportunities to make sure the community knows what's happening because I don't own council. When you were on council, you didn't own council. Council is owned by the community. You are just a custodian in that position while you're on council as a councillor. What you're really doing is you're trying to make it a better environment, a better community, and then pass that better environment on to the next group of councillors that come along. The thing that is most important to me is if the community owns it, the community should know what's going on, and that's a really important part for me. And I think all our councillors are on board with that. It's really trying to make sure that we keep that open and transparent communication. 
Do the councils, um, the present set of councils, they, when they've passed a motion, council, that they believe that what they've done is right? Absolutely. The, the debate, I really enjoy the debate we are having with the group of councillors. Sometimes there's a phone call before council trying to understand what's happening and, and various discussions, but even the debate that happens during the meeting itself, you can see people torn by different issues. There's different issues that they can see both points of view if there's two contrary arguments. But all that process, all that decision-making, you can see it ticking through their minds. And then when they finally put their hand up to vote one way or the other, you can see they fully believe in that. They've thought about it. They've read the information. They've debated it. And they've got to that point. And I have stressed to the councillors a lot that don't believe what some people on other councils or even previous councils have said, that the staff made us do this or the staff made us do that. The staff are there to provide the advice. And we've got some fantastic staff with some great expertise but they're there to provide the information, accurate information to councillors. Councillors make decisions on council. The resolutions of council are binding on the staff. Even if the staff don't agree with those resolutions, they are binding on the staff. So councillors make decisions. And I've said that to councillors a number of times because when you put your hand up, you've got to be confident. When you're walking down the street and someone says, oh, Councillor X, why did you do this? You need to make sure that you know. Having an answer that says, oh, the staff did that or the staff made us do this, no. is not good enough. No. Saying, here are the reasons we voted that way. Now, not everyone's going to agree with you, and that's fine. What I like to think is we can get everyone to understand why we've done something, not necessarily agree with everything that we've done. And that's a challenge, but it's a challenge that I think is one that we can take on and can deliver for our community, get them to understand the whys, maybe not agree with us every time, but understand the whys about various decisions. Yeah, well, I mean, I think of a decision back when we made the decision about the theatre. I know at the time we had a number of staff on council who were dead against it, dead against it. When the motion went through and the theatre was a goer, it was interesting to watch the staff say, OK, the decision's been made, now we'll work to get it done. And I thought that was a very positive move, and I'm hoping that these staff we have at present on council are thinking the same way. Once the decision's been made, that's it. We get on with the job and do the best we can for Dubbo. Yeah, that's right. They're professional staff. And again, I haven't seen any evidence to go against that, that decisions of council, decisions of council, staff get on and make it happen. And, and they do a very good job at doing that. So, yeah, I think it's a really good group we've got of councillors. I think it's a great group of staff we've got there. And I think working well together... There's a bit of ground to make up, but we'll keep working towards that and make sure we keep getting there. Well, Matthew, that's about it, I think. I can't think of anything else to say. I just wish you, as Mayor and the Councillors, all the best for 2023 and the decisions that you make, uh, I hope, are positive ones for the city. I understand Barnsley makes you do a limerick at the end of, <laughs> at the end of this podcast. So um, where's your limerick? Buddy, I'll hit you with my limerick. Obviously, leading into Australia Day this week, I thought a great opportunity to do a limerick about Australia Day. So here's my limerick for this week, just for you, Richard, and for Barnsley while he's listening. This week we all have the chance to say how the nation is better than it was yesterday. There is a great opportunity to display our progressive unity and all come together on Australia Day. Well done. We'll see everybody in Wellington on the 25th and see everybody in Dubbo on the 26th. Um, wishing everybody well with the sporting that's going on at the present time. Uh, good luck with the roads. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> good luck with the water. And uh, basically, I hope, as I said earlier, that 2023 is very, very productive for Dubbo Regional Council. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for filling in for Mark Barnes this week. You seem to be OK. Maybe you should find some radio station you can go and talk to on a daily I basis. I might find a radio station. Yeah, that'd, that'd be a good idea. I wonder, yeah. where, wonder where we'd go. That's right. uh, thank you, Richard. Meryl Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.